Many years have passed since a fellowship of light battled the shadow creature at the Grey Haven. Now the heroes find themselves in an unknown land where they discover a man in black is wreaking havoc. Undeath follows him wherever he goes, and long-forgotten legends rise again having been possessed by his evil. Join the players of this Dungeons & Dragons campaign as they attempt to stop the man in black as he collects artifacts both on and off the Lonely Isle. Welcome to Tolerasia in part two of the Inglorian Bastards trilogy, Rise of the Mormon. Alright, welcome everybody to episode 64 of the Inglorian Bastards campaign. With me tonight is uh, a language expert named Paul Strack. And I'm very excited to have him. Um, it was in talking with Paul that I realized... Um, that this campaign or this these uh, set of interviews needed uh, a series of uh, of language episodes, so people to come on and to know more about the language and, and to talk about those. So, so Paul Strack is a um, is um, he's going to come with us tonight to talk uh, a little bit about the Quenya language, and um, the reason I call him an expert is because um, he has. Uh, uh, both started and maintained uh, a website called Eldamo, which stands for the Elvish Data Model. Um, and if I could just, Paul, if I could just, um, before I ask you more about it, uh, if I could read from your website. The collection is called a lexicon because it is not a dictionary in a traditional sense. Um, can, you, can you tell us more about your, your site Eldamo and what makes it a lexicon? Right. So I started working on this site, oh, Lord, probably about 11 years ago now, although it didn't actually become public until about five years ago. And um, the reason why I call it a lexicon rather than a dictionary is a proper dictionary has things like definitions. Uh, and proper dictionaries, generally speaking, go... They, they just describe the words as they are now. They don't necessarily describe... Uh, they, a lot of modern dictionaries will have uh, historical entries and etymologies and stuff like that. But they tend to be focused on how the language is actually used. Whereas the Tolkien languages are of sufficient complexity that uh, they need a more complicated set of descriptions. And so uh, the, the Eldamo data model will actually, actually describes not only the words that are in the language, but also how the words in the languages are related to each other, how they evolved over time, both in the context of the universe and also how Tolkien's own thoughts about the languages evolved over time. So it's more complicated than, than an ordinary <laughs> dictionary. Not, so yeah. I, I will add that part of the reason why I don't call it a dictionary is because one of the big things missing from it right now are proper definitions of all the words. And I do hope someday to add those. So at some point in time, I may actually start calling it a dictionary, but it's not a dictionary yet. Okay. And, w and when you say, um, I, I think uh, I think you're spot on with... Um, pretty much anything that's related to Tolkien um, is is complicated, right? Like, and especially the languages. So, so this, and, and Corey Olson came on and he talked a little bit about how, um, and he's talked many times on his own podcast about how the histories have changed. Like, uh, you know, Tolkien's, um, his his uh, initial concept of his world sort of evolved, um, and, and would you would you would you agree that maybe the languages did the same thing as the histories changed? Yes, more so, it, it, probably more so than the histories themselves, actually. Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, the language is Tolkien kept changing his mind. Now you, there's a there's a uh, there's a chain at, through his writings. Not everything is changing every week, but uh, he made some fairly major revisions to the languages uh, as his life went along, okay. including what the languages actually were. And so, what, can you tell us which which of the Elven languages he um, developed uh, most? I guess I mean because he, you know, there were there were several languages, uh, Adonaic, and uh, of course the Dwarven languages, and, and um, but the there are two primary Elven languages. Is that correct? Yeah. So the two main languages that Tolkien focused on were uh, well, it, 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 in the Lord of the Rings, he calls them. Uh, Quenya, which is the language of the High Elves, the Noldor, and the Banyar, uh, Valinor, and Sindarin, which is the language of the Elves that uh, remained in Middle-earth. And so he spent most of his time working on those two languages. Of the two, he spent more time working on Quenya. Uh, I think that's just you know where he started and where his preferences lie, but he did actually spend a fair amount of time working on both languages, and he worked on them pretty much throughout his entire life. So he started working on them in the 1910s and continued to work on them up until shortly before his death in the 1970s. Um, wow. And did he, I mean, he was a, he, 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 this was his thing, right? He was a philologist, right? He, he studied language and, and taught language. Um, did he, um, did he borrow uh, it, in developing these languages? Were there, were there languages that he borrowed from? Do, do you know? Is yes and no. Um, so, Tolkien had a deep, deep love of languages, many different languages, as a matter of fact. He started studying languages basically when he was a kid, a teenager. Uh, he started inventing languages, actually, when he was a kid. But uh, there are a couple of languages that he drew heavily for inspiration. For example, um, part of his original inspiration for Quenya was the Finnish language, which he encountered when he was a young man. And he, he liked a lot of the aspects of the language a great deal, and he borrowed uh, some of the basic uh, sound systems and uh, grammatical features of uh, Finnish when he invented uh, Quenya. Now, I have to add a caveat. The reason why I said yes and no is, you know, when people hear about these things, they go, oh, well, they think Quenya is just Finnish slightly changed. And so he borrowed some sounds and some grammatical elements, but a lot of it was his own invention. In fact, almost all the vocabulary of all the languages were things that he invented. Hmm. Very little of the vocabulary is actually drawn from any real-world language. In fact, every now and again, he'd stumble across a word that he thought was too close to a real-world real world language, and he would deliberately modify them to make them look similar <laughs> to real-world languages. Oh, well, well, that would explain why I kept changing so much. Um, so, so I'm going to bring up a few words here uh, to maybe help our listeners. If they, if they ever do research online, they're going to see some of these words and, and maybe even some of our listeners know what these words mean. But um, this, this idea of a, uh, a conlang, could you, could you talk about what a conlang is? Right. So conlang is an abbreviation for constructive languages. And uh, Quenya and Sindarin, Tolkien's two big Elvish languages, are some of the most famous constructed languages out there, but they're certainly not the only ones. And, and Tolkien was certainly not the first person to invent a language. Uh, people who talk about conlangs, sort of one very broad division in conlangs is between what people call auxiliary languages, which are languages that are built for some sort of practical purpose. 
Probably the most famous of those is Esperanto, oh, yeah. which that did uh, you know around the turn of the nineteenth century as a as a universal language. And you know whether it succeeded in that is a is an open question. But it, that that was certainly its original intent, and it's pretty widespread at this point. There's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of a million Esperanto speakers. Wow. But Esperanto was designed to be you know to serve a real world function. Uh, the other major category of languages is what people call art langs, which are languages that are constructed for artistic purposes. Uh, and so again, Tolkien was not the first person to do, to do this, but he definitely started a wave of people being interested in uh, using and inventing languages for fictional contexts, and he is kind of the birth of the modern art lang movement, I think, especially in fiction. So prior to Tolkien, people would like make up words, but they'd just be sort of random collections of sounds, and after Tolkien, people really thought about, okay, I'm making this imaginary world, I'm we're thinking about things like culture and religion, I really ought to spend some time thinking about what their languages are like as well, and construct a, a set of sounds and names, even if make, I'm just making up a list of names, I should try and spend some time figuring out what sounds can compose those names so that people can, uh, so the, the names of the fictional context will actually sound like they're part of the same language and be believable. Hmm. And if people are really skillful and they have several cultures in their fiction, then they'll create several languages that have different sounds but are similar enough within the language you can tell the difference between uh, one language and another. So, so when people invent these languages, um, like Tolkien, um, do, do they, they're not just creating vocabulary, right? Are they also creating the script? Like, I, I remember seeing the word tengwar. Um, and that's and that's right. actually how. Well, you, you would probably better define it than myself. Right. So, so it really depends. Uh, Oxlangs will rarely create their own script because that kind of defeats a lot of their purposes. Usually, Oxlangs are created to sort of facilitate communication in the real world. So Esperanto just uses the regular Latin script that a lot of European languages use. Um, but uh, and, and that's true. Some 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 for art lengths. If you're just writing a book, you know one or two books in a series, and you're just inventing a language for some of your names, you're pretty rarely invent your own script because then you've got to pay somebody to make a font for it, and it's a very expensive. But a lot of languages do actually go forth and create their own scripts. Uh, you know, after after the Tolkien's language, is probably the most famous art language would be Klingon, sure. and Klingon has its own script, uh, as well as, you know, its own vocabulary language. But uh, one of the things that Tolkien did, in addition to inventing his languages, he also invented, uh, well, several scripts, as a matter of fact. Uh, the most famous of which is probably the Tengwar script, which you see uh, in um, the Appendix E of Lord of the Rings. But he also invented uh, the Kyiv script, which is a more angular, runic script. And he invented several other scripts well that people know, we know less about, uh, like Sarati, which is the script of the ancient elves and stuff like that. Hmm. Huh. Well, um, I, I'm I am curious. I'm curious how 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 did you get into this? I mean, what what was did were you uh, did you study this? So uh, I'm going to repeat the same thing that a lot of the people you interview say. I started reading Tolkien when I was a kid. I fell in love with it. I read it year after year. Uh, I also really liked the languages when I first started reading them. But back when I was reading the books, there just wasn't a whole lot of information available about the languages. There was the appendixes in the Lord of the Rings, there was the appendix in the Cimmerian, and that was basically basically it. 
there was no additional information. Yeah. So I kind of lost interest in it after a while just because there wasn't really much you could do with the languages at the time. And then, um, you know, when Peter Jackson's movies came out in the early 2000s, uh, I, I really liked those as well. And there's a lot of Elvish languages in those movies. Like, well, you know, it's been a while since I looked at these, uh, this stuff. Maybe I should take another look and see what, you know, is out there now. And I discovered that in the intervening, like, 20 years, a whole bunch of new information had been published hmm. about the languages. And there was actually quite a bit more that you could uh, study and learn about the languages than you could uh, when I first read the books. So that was what really renewed my interest in the languages. And uh, I, I'm sure you'll talk about, ask me about this later, but I'm a role player. When I first started doing uh, more research in languages, it was motivated by my desire to use the languages in the games that I ran and played in. And that's how I started getting back into the languages um, sort of this time around. Well, that's, I, I, you know, it's one of the things that, that I loved most about doing this campaign. And, and we'll talk about this at the end. I have a few words that we'll, we'll be talking about um, uh, in Quenya um, that I sort of probably <laughs> mucked up quite a bit. You know, <laughs> there were words that I tried to, to construct and I, and I tried to put meeting behind and I, I totally agree with you about the trying to use them in the games and that just how much more rich it makes it. Um, but let's, let's transition right into that. So you're a role player. Um, I, I remember listening to a, um, uh, an interview that you did back in May of 2019, uh, uh, about your, your experience with white wolf. It was on, uh, I think it was it mage, the podcast. Is that, is that right? Yes. And so, so that the whole, um, I, I remember um, uh, many, many years ago, probably 25 years ago, 30 years ago, um, seeing one of the first White Wolf books come out. Now, was, was White Wolf your, um, was that how you got into the world of role-playing, or did, did you? Uh, no, 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 no. I started where almost everybody else started, which is D&D. Yeah. D&D was my first role-playing game. I pretty much played... Every edition of Dungeons and Dragons that have come out, except for fifth edition, oddly enough, huh. uh, I started the very first role-playing game that I purchased and played was the first edition of AD and D way back in the seventies. So, uh, but I've been role-playing for more than thirty-five years now. So D and D is a lovely game. I like it a lot, but you know, there's only so much time you could spend playing one game. So I branched out and played many, many different games over the years. White Wolf is a set of games that I'm very happy with and have played a great deal, but I've played lots of different stuff. You should go through a list of the more famous role-playing games. I've probably played it at some point or another. <laughs> yeah. I have very eclectic taste when it comes to role-playing games. I, I like just about anything. Yeah. Yeah, and and so what is your uh, what is your favorite setting? Uh, would it be would it be like the cyberpunk type, uh, or or sort of the more traditional like fantasy setting of of uh, if you can call Dungeons and Dragons a fantasy setting? Uh, what, do you, do you have uh, a preference? To be honest, I, well, so I I tend to do um, fantasy and modern fantasy more than the rest, but I've done cyberpunk, sci-fi. Um, I haven't done a lot of non-fantastic stuff. I've like done a couple. I, I, we played, I played James Bond a little bit when I was in um, high school. Yeah. Superhero games, I've also done a fair amount of them as well. Uh, probably, I don't really have particularly a favorite. Uh, it depends on what I'm in the mood for. I, 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 I run, the games that I tend to run, I, I, I look for something 
a story that's of interest to me uh, or a setting that's of interest to me. And then I'll find a group of people that want to play it and I'll get together and run it. And I have so many ideas for stuff that I want to run that I, I bounce around quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah. One of what I'm doing right now is um, the game that I'm running at the moment is uh, a game called Dungeon World, which is a, kind of a and d like game based on the Apocalypse Engine rule set. Mm-hmm. Uh, the setting that I'm using is a setting called Harm, which is uh, an old game world uh, from, again, from the 70s. Well, actually, no, I think, I think it was published in the 80s. That uh, is focused on having a relatively realistic, low-magic medieval setting. So that's what I'm doing at the moment, but I'm also playing in several other games. I'm playing in a, a superhero game. I'm playing another game that's uh, sort of a, a dark thieves world type fantasy setting, uh, and all kinds of other stuff. Wow, I, I bow to you. That is that is an ambitious list. Uh, and uh, I just wanted to comment on, on something you mentioned. One of the things that you're running right now is a low magic setting, and that's and that's kind of how we started this. I, I became a little more lenient as they travel, as the characters traveled across the straight road, um, and I think that that um, I think that I think the players enjoyed that a lot, uh, a lot more. You know, um, how how are you finding the low magic setting? What, does that does that open up other avenues for you in role playing? So the setting is low magic. The, the, the characters, the player characters, are not. Uh, you know, it's a fantasy game. People want to do fun stuff. So the whole point of the game is to make things enjoyable for the players. So even though the world itself is relatively mundane and there are a few people with magical abilities, the players themselves, player characters themselves, are remarkable individuals that can do cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. Now, everybody wants to have their, their cool toys to play with. And I'm perfectly happy to indulge my players with that. Nice. Yeah. Well, we, um, you know, the, the the we use the Adventures in Middle Earth rule set at least for the first part of the trilogy, and um, and kind of loosely uh, in the second and third parts. Um, but the uh, the folks over at Cubicle Seven provide a nice list of recommended. They, you know, if you are going to use magic, uh, recommended spells, which uh, I think worked really well. Um, if I could, um, if I could shift gears a little bit, I was I was wondering. Um, you were talking about. When you when you first sort of got into the languages, there 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 weren't a lot of things out there, um, and probably not much internet <laughs> either <laughs> when you first got into the to the Lord of the Rings. But um, but when you came back later, there there were more things. So I want to talk to you more about your sources for Eldama, um, if you if you could. Yeah. So so the first big set of uh, information that was published was the History of Middle Earth series that Christopher Tolkien put out about uh, his that his father's uh, journey, so to speak, throughout his life as he assembled the various materials that made up his fictional worlds. Uh, Christopher Tolkien didn't specifically focus on the languages, but since languages were such a big and important part of Tolkien's world, he, he ended up talking about them a fair amount. So there's lots of interesting linguistic information in the history of Middle-earth series, even though that series primarily focuses on the evolution of the narratives. Uh, But uh, in the late 90s, there were a group of Tolkien languages fans that uh, communicated with Christopher Tolkien, sent him a letter saying, hey, you mentioned all these interesting things in the uh, back of the uh, Book of Lost Tales and other books in your History of Middle-earth series. 
we would like to see more about that. Would you be willing to share that material with us? Uh, and Christopher Tolkien agreed. Oh, wow. And there are two, um, there are two linguistic journals. Uh, the one's called Vinyar uh, Tenguar, and the other one is called Parma Alvalambron. And uh, they've taken the material that Christopher Tolkien generously gave them and have been gradually publishing information from Tolkien's private writings about his language. They've been doing that basically for the last 15 years. Huh. So I, I've seen those words uh, written. Uh, I didn't know how to pronounce them, of course, but the, um, the uh, I, I use uh, I use the Elf Dictionary as well as your site uh, quite a bit when I was trying to construct words. Um, I don't know if you've you've seen the Elf Dictionary, but they actually they, they what's that? Okay. Well, they actually reference Eldamo quite a bit on, on their site. So um, that's great. Well, I, I have to ask, um, have you have you had any uh, sort of geek out moments, uh, like fanboy moments where you've gotten to meet somebody that you consider, um, you know, uh, an expert in, 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 in Middle Earth, Tolkien uh, languages, um, some, someone close to the to the Tolkien family or, or something something similar? Well, I haven't met anybody in the Tolkien family, but the Tolkien linguistic community is actually pretty small. So if you spend any amount of time in it, you're eventually going to run into the quote-unquote famous people. <laughs> so the people who I talked about earlier, the, uh, the editors of those two linguistics journals, uh, there's a uh, biannual Tolkien's language conference that happens, and uh, I've been to the last two, and, and two years ago, the conference had most of the editors of those journals attend, and I, I got to meet them all at that time. And at this point, I, I, I pretty much knew all of them. Uh, that, that particular conference was a weird situation because I hadn't decided whether or not I was going to go or not. I hadn't been to any of these conferences yet, and they happened to have scheduled, uh, scheduled the conference to run uh, at a, a university that's two miles from my house. So they, they do these conferences Every two years, someplace all over the world, they've been in London, they've been in Switzerland, they've been in France, and it just so happened that the year that I was thinking about going, they did it, you know, in Hayward, California, which is where I live. Oh, so. wow. <laughs> that's that's awesome. So, what what is this conference called? So, so the listeners can look it up. Uh, it's um, Omen Tielba. Uh, so you know, you know the uh, the phrase that from Tolkien's books, Elen Sila, Elen Sila. Lumena Omenti Elavu. So the Omenti Elva conference is, is is inspired by that name. Omenti Elva basically means our meeting is what it means. All right, all right. Well, I'll I'll take a look. Um, so if I if I could at this point, I want to I want to switch gears a little bit and and talk about um, Quenya specifically, um, and 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 if you could just tell us a little bit about. The Quenya language, um, and you have already, but um, you know this this concept of Quenya and uh, Neo Quenya, and um, uh, anything that you think that the listeners might find interesting about that language, and sort of uh, what makes it, what sort of sets it apart. Right. So Quenya, uh, as Tolkien conceived of it around when the Lord of the Rings was written, is the native language of to, uh, just. To, I, I don't know if you've talked about this before in your podcast, but there's three major tribes of the elves. There's the Banyar, the Noldar, and the Teleri. Uh, so Quenya is the language of the first two tribes of elves, the Banyar and the Noldar. And 
that language is the most widely language spoken in um, Amun, in Valinor, where the Valar asked the elves to live. Uh, the only uh, major other language spoken in Valinor is uh, the language of the Teleri, which is similar to but slightly different than the Quenya language. And Tolkien didn't actually talk about that particular language very much. And so, so, so most of this, uh, the, the, how, how do we know that the Telerian language is different then? Well, because Tolkien told us, basically. Okay, okay. all right, got it. We're taking his word for it. <laughs> you know, he, he didn't spend a lot of time talking about it, but he did write a little bit about it, and he talked about um, some of the differences. Actually, most of his writing, I, maybe maybe you can get uh, your other language expert to speak about it Lord. Part of the reason why I talked about Teleri is... Teleri is, uh, the older version of Teleri is the ancestral language of Sindarin, the language of the elves that remained in Middle Earth. So that, a lot of the time he spent talking about what uh, the Teleri language, he was uh, talking about in the context of how it evolved into the Sindarin language that was spoken in uh, Middle Earth proper. Right, and that's and that's kind of in the campaign how we while we, how we've handled it. Um, you know that in the first part of the campaign when they're sort of traveling around Middle Earth proper, right? The the, the part that we all know from from the books and the uh, the, the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, and the movies. Um, you know, we, they encountered a lot of Sindarin, um, and as the, as they get closer to um, as they travel across the straight road, right? They they start encountering, of course, the Teleran elves, and the, um, and then later on they the Spear elves, the Vanyar elves, and then um, of course the the Noldor are kind of everywhere, right? Um, but so so it, it actually at this part of the campaign, we're 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 getting some of our our first glimpses of of the, the Quenya words. And, and uh, so these come in the forms of, of, uh, people's names, uh, uh obviously, um, uh, item names. Um, and if, and if we could, um, you know, I sent you this list to sort of ahead of time, but, um, I, I have a few words that I wanted to run by and you can, you can, um, you can maybe rate me or grade me on how I did with the, with the, with the words. Well, that, that, so, so, there's something I'd like to say before we actually get into the words. Yeah, sure. I can't actually tell you what the right words for the things you're saying would be. Okay. So the thing about Tolkien's languages is you know, there are a few things that we could say that would be uh, unquestionably wrong. Like if you used the word like splots, for example, I could tell you unequivocally, no, that's not an Elvish word. That's not a, <laughs> not a word that Tolkien would have ever used. But saying what the actual right word is becomes very difficult to do. And part of the reason why I emphasize this is people tend to get worked up and a little bit paranoid about being correct, especially when they're studying a new language. So correctness is kind of in the eye of the, eye of the beholder, especially when you're talking about sort of an imaginary language, a fictional language like Tolkien's language. So if you just, if you're running a D&D campaign and you want to pull some names, some words off an Elvish language website, like uh, my site, Eldamo or the uh, Elf Thick site that you mentioned earlier, the um, uh, Parth Evelyn, uh, and slap them together and make some names for your game. That, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, especially if you're, you're running a game that's basically for a very small audience. So I, I want to encourage both you and people who are listening to this, if you want to play around with the language, slap things together, experiment with them, come up with cool-sounding names, I would not spend a lot of time worrying about whether or not those names are correct or not, unless you really feel like you want to dig into the languages and learn them 
in, in all their gory details, of which there are quite a few, that, that's fine for, for most practical purposes. I mean, essentially, what you're doing is you're, you're running a game for a very small audience. You're using Tolkien's language as a resource to come up with cool names. And, and then, you know, whether you're, you're right or not, it's, it's kind of an open... So I, I, I expected I expected this to come up in my next interview because um, the the Cinderin expert that that, we were, that I mentioned uh, is uh, a friend of yours actually Fiona yeah. jo Jollings is, yeah. am I saying her last name correctly Jollings yeah. um, she uh, she's 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 actually she teaches classes on Cinderin and, and has written a book on Neo Cinderin and she talks a lot about this uh, what you just mentioned and, and especially in the introduction to her book. Um, about you know the, the idea of creating the the you know the what's correct and what's not correct and, and in fact most of you know of the spoken Cinderin that's out there is really neo Cinderin right created created by fans essentially right is, is that yeah. sound, does that sound right no that's correct so that's kind of a topic that I didn't really a question you asked that I didn't answer earlier so um, when it comes to the languages. But my view is the goal of Tolkien's language is not to figure out what is right, but it's, the goal is not to be right. The goal is to be less wrong. <laughs> right, right. So, so in terms of studying Tolkien's languages, um, you can't really learn Tolkien languages in the way that you would learn a real world language. And you can't even really learn Tolkien languages in the way that you can a lot of other uh, invented languages. Like, if you wanted to learn Klingon, there's a Klingon dictionary that's been published. It's got a dictionary, it's got a grammar, it's got a lot of rules about what the languages are. You can just go buy the, the Klingon dictionary and read through it and get a basic idea of how Klingon works. Tolkien's languages, unfortunately, don't work that way. Tolkien never gave us a dictionary. He never finished working on an Elvish grammar for any of his languages. What we have about his languages all, is all in fragments. So we're kind of forced into the unfortunate position of piecing through the material that he left us, trying to figure out what he was aiming at and, and trying to assemble something that resembles a functional language out of what he left behind. Uh, a lot of people in this field these days sort of divide the study of Tolkien's languages up into sort of two arenas. There's the study of the languages as Tolkien himself wrote them, and when people talk about that, they talk, tend to talk about things like uh, Quenya and Sindarin unqualified. And then there is the attempt to take the fragments of his language and put them together into a format that somebody might actually use for conversation. And because Tolkien himself did not determine those things, uh, these um, uh, reconstructions or uh, collections of information, people tend to talk about them in terms of Things like, uh, they, they, they tend to use labels like neoquinia and neosyndrin as a way of clarifying that these are things that are building on what Tolkien wrote but aren't necessarily exactly what Tolkien wrote. Can I ask, well, you, can I ask you related to this? I, I'm wondering how the community felt about the movies in, in terms of language. Now, was David Salo was the, was the, the sort of the person that um, helped the cast members learn this, this, the language, correct, during, during the movies? Yeah, do, do you uh, Okay, so how, how did the community feel about the languages spoken in the movies? Well, again, it depends. So, so one of the things about Tolkien linguistics is, you know, things that were right back in the early 2000s, we may not consider those to be correct at all. Uh -huh. They're not necessarily completely correct now because new information is being published all the time. The way that I tend to 
uh, advocate that people think about Tolkien's languages, you're not just studying an imaginary language. What you're effectively doing is you're studying an imaginary dead language. You're studying a language that isn't doesn't really exist anymore. But you know, it's kind of like if you were researching ancient Egyptian to use a real world analogy. So there's a lot of information. There's lots of published texts in ancient Egyptian. They're scattered over many thousands of years of material. There are, there are various scholars that sort of go through the information, try to assemble things, and try to figure out how the languages work. And, you know, the same way that, you know, every now and again somebody's going to find some new papyruses that give us more insight into the way ancient Egyptian worked, every now and again new uh, unpublished material uh, is released uh, about Tolkien's languages, and then we have to, like, take that new published unpublished material, incorporate it into the things that we know about the languages. In some cases, it confirms things that we'd already built. In other cases, it uh, contradicts them, and we have to figure out how to uh, to reconcile them. Oh, wow. So, so the way that our understanding of the languages back in the early 2000s, when Dale Sala was educating people on how to speak in the Lord of the Ring movies, you know, a lot of what he did was still probably considered valid, but some of the stuff that he did is, is unfortunately these days considered to be a bit iffy. Okay. So <laughs> that's just kind of the nature of the beast and how things work. That's why we tend to use these languages like neo-Quenya and neo-Syndrome about things because we have to bear in mind that we're still learning about the languages and we're still studying them. And so we don't necessarily even understand everything that Tolkien did yet because not all the information is available. So uh, I, you mentioned, uh, you, you sort of made the comparison to ancient Egyptian. I, I remember reading an article that you published um, on this, so, so people can, can read more about this. You have, you have blog entries on realelvish.net, is that correct? That's correct. Um, so, so there's that. So, so let, let me come back to the words that I was going to share with you from the campaign. Um, and, and maybe I'll rephrase it instead of you, instead of giving me a, a check or a check plus, uh, about the words, uh, how I did, maybe let's, um, we can, I can just share them with you and, uh, oh perfect. Oh, good. I, I remember telling you that it'd be an email. Like I'm totally fine with you trashing my words. <laughs> I'm totally fine with that. Uh, so the first one, um, speaking of the Vanyar elves, um, they the characters are right now traveling through uh, um, the uh, uh, land of elms, uh, and uh, will come to the cottage of lost play, and will eventually make it over to um, right, right, basically on Eldamar, like in Eldamar, like uh, uh, they'll come to a, a port town, and will be given a gift from. Uh, the king of the Vanyar, and and this, of course, because they're the spe the spear elves um, that live in sort of close proximity to the the Valar, um, will be a spear, and um, the the spear's name was called Enayor, uh, so uh, E N N A Y O R, and and for for me, what I was going for was uh, uh, for it to mean first blood in Quenya. Um, how, what do you think of that? Okay, so about this word. So the two elements of this word that you're using, Anna and your, both of those words come from the etymologies, which is a document that Tolkien put together in the 1930s, sort of about halfway through his life. Uh, now, the, unfortunately, the first of those elements they use, Anna, they use as your word for first, that one comes from an entry in the etymology that Tolkien deleted. Oh, no. deleted <laughs> it. Not a lot of people would use that word as the word for first. There's another word that he used 
later on, uh, minya, that is probably the most commonly used word for first. Uh, and he talked about that particular word at, in, in, in great detail. And we, we have a lot of confidence that that is the word that he eventually settled on as the word for uh, first in Elvish. There's sort of two basic roots that mean one in Elvish. It's mean and air. But air uh, means one single thing alone. It's used in, for words like uh, erasia, lonely. Oh, yeah. It is by itself. Mean, however, means one in the sense of first in a series. So the Elvish word for one when you're counting is mean, and the word for first is uh, minya. Ah, see? See, this is going exactly the way I thought it would go. <laughs> this is good. No, this so, is what I was going for. So as for the second element, your, yours actually, whether your is a valid word or not as a matter of case, it's a word that Tolkien had in the 1930s. There's nothing in Tolkien's later writing that really contradicts whether or not you could use the word your for blood or not. However, there is another word that Tolkien invented later on, uh, serake, uh, uh, which also means blood. And since that word, I think he made it invented in the 50s or the 60s, it had appears in the uh, versions of the Silmarillion that were eventually published. That's probably the word that people will be more likely to use for blood than your. Also, minya your sounds a little clumsy. I think minya serke probably sounds a bit better. Ooh, that if does I were to good. say first blood as the name of the spear, I would say minya serke. See, that's perfect. That actually does sound really good. Thank you. All right, moving on to the second one, since I've kept you for almost 40 minutes now, uh, uh, is was the name of a player character. And I, I particularly loved uh, this name, mostly not because of, of the name, but mostly where the name came from. Um, and in looking back at how I built the name, I have some questions about, like, what the heck was I thinking? But um, So th this was about our, our elf, uh, who is the fictitious brother of Celebrimbor. His name was Ezelindor. Um, and Zelendor was named after the green mound upon which the two trees of Valinor stood. Um, uh, of course, that mound was called Ezelohar. Um, so, again, so I, I'll let you break down the word, but um, I was hoping that this word would mean something like servant of the green mound. Well, it, it might mean servant of green. Uh, so, so, Azello is a word that means green. But Azello is a word that means green in the Vanyaran dialect of Quenya, not ah, the Moldoran dialect. Okay. Azello is kind of an interesting word because it's one of the very few words that we know uh, from the Valoran language. The uh, Vanyar, who were very close to the, the Val Valar, they actually spent a fair amount of time working with them. Now, the, uh, the Eldar didn't really like the Valoran language. It, didn't, it sounded kind of harsh to them, so they didn't use it very much. But there are a few words... Like uh, Azelohar, which actually was originally adapted from the Valoran name of that mound. Ah. Uh, so Azello is a, a perfectly fine word for green if you are a Vanyar, but unfortunately it doesn't really work for somebody who is a Noldor. And part of the reason why is that Z sound, the Z, is a language that was in the Vanyaran dialect of Quenya, but not in the Noldoran dialect of Quenya. You look in the Lord of Marines appendix. Tolkien talks about the uh, evolution of one of the Tengwar letters, which was called either Are or Esse. It's a little uh, double S sign. Mm -hmm. that, that letter was originally used for the letter Z. 
But in the Noldoran dialect, the letter Z, so, so the original name of the letter was uh, Aze, uh, meaning day. Um, but in the Noldoran dialect over time, the Z sound came to be pronounced like R. Oh. So the name of the letter changed from Aze to Are. And then because they no longer needed uh, a separate letter for it, because there was another letter, Ore, that was used for R as well, sort of the, those uh, words that had uh, the Tenguar Ore in it, they began to use Ore instead, and the, uh, the letter that was originally used for a Z sound came to represent a double S sound, and they changed the name of the letter from uh, Ore to Ese. Uh, <laughs> so that, that name is totally wrong. <laughs> Totally wrong. It would probably be fine if we were talking about a Valoran elf, a Vanyarin elf. Yeah. Right. A Vanyarin elf, but not so much for an Olbrin. Now, for an Olbrin elf, you want to say a servant of the mound. The uh, more common Quenya name for a Zelohar is uh, Korolare, which basically literally means mound of summer. So I would probably use the name uh, Korondor for servant of the mound. Ooh, that's a good one. Or, and it, it would be emphasized like that, Korondor? Yes. So uh, the, the stress rules for Quenya is basically um, you put the stress on the second to last syllable if that syllable is uh, long, meaning it either has a long letter or ends in a pair of consonants. Otherwise, you put it on the uh, third from the end. Ah. So Korondor, the stress goes in the middle because that syllable has an ND in it. Whereas something like um, uh, Eldamo, for example, if that were an Elvish word, uh, the stress would go in the first syllable because the second syllable is just A-M, it's a short syllable. Ah, well, I, I actually really like that name a lot. I, and if I were, again, turning this into fan fiction, I would adopt that name. Um, so it, you, you actually, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, you, you mentioned, um, so you call, you call the language that the Valar speak uh, Valoran, and 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 that's different than what I thought. I was actually thinking more of like uh, Game of Thrones. Is I, I thought it was Valeran. <laughs> that's not right, though. Well, it's, it's the same story, right? So Valoran, the the second syllable is a r, so that's a short syllable, switching the stress goes on the first syllable. Got it. Okay. Valoran. All right, and the last word that I want to bring up, um, and this is going to sound very familiar um, because of a place name um, in uh, Beleriand, uh, but this was um, this was a character that I was really proud of, mostly because, um, again, it wasn't my character, but um, it was named after a an Avathari, which was a race I made up, of course, named after the region that Ungoliant came from, and um, we started thinking, of course, that there were probably other creatures out there in the world um, similar to Ungoliant, um, if you can be at least partially similar, similar to Ungoliant. Um, and this, this character's name was Morloman, uh, which sounds very similar to Dorloman. Uh, but uh, it, its name meant uh, I was going for the dark shadow or something like that. Um, so how'd I do on that one? <laughs> Well, so, so Dorloman does indeed mean the land of shadows. But unfortunately, it only meant the land of shadows back in the 1910s and 1920s. Ah. That was the original meaning of the name when Tolkien first wrote The Lost Tales, his sort of earliest iterations of uh, the Cimmerian. Sometime around the 1930s, 
Tolkien changed his mind about what that name meant. He kept the name Dor Loman, but he decided that it meant the land of echoes rather than the land of shadows. It was named after basically the pained cry of, of Morgoth when he was defeated in one of the times that Morgoth was defeated. I forget exactly, forget exactly which one. <laughs> so, so that Loman, unfortunately, no longer means uh, shadow. At least not in the languages as Tolkien used him in the 1950s or 60s. Dark echoes, is that what that word would mean then? Dark, dark echoes is what, is what that word would mean. As to how to actually say dark shadow, that's actually a little tricky. Uh, the words for light and shadow, Tolkien invented a lot of words for light and shadow. Yes, he did. So, so there are a lot of different words for shadow with different shades of meaning. So we probably need to have like a 15, 20 minute conversation <laughs> about it. Just kind of figure out exactly what kind of connotation you want the name to have in order to figure out the best, um, the best name for shadow in that case. But if I, if I have to do something off the cuff, I might suggest, uh, uh, lumbe is another word for shadow that you might use in that, in that circumstance. Lumbe. But that, that would go a little more, that, that, that's a little more subjective as to which exactly would be the best word for you to use. The other ones were easier. This one, I don't have a concrete suggestion off the top of my head. What about the suff uh, the prefix, I should say, the more? More is actually fine. Prefix more for dark is actually a word that he Tolkien established very, very early. He invented it in the 1910s, and he pretty much kept it for his entire life. So stuff does actually change in Tolkien's languages, but there are a lot of other things where he came up with an idea very early on, and then he just kept it. Yeah. Or more was the word for darkness in the 1910s, and stayed same all the way up through the 1970s, as you know, as in like Mordor, for example. All right, so I got that one half right. <laughs> if there is such a thing, is it, right. It's all subjective. Yeah. So when people name things, it's 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 an art rather than a science. And there's lots of different options you can go about building stuff. Maybe, maybe a good conversation you might have with Fiona since we've been going for it so long, is some of the rules that elves use for naming languages. She's actually spent more time researching that than I have. So that might be a good question to ask her. Okay, I will do that. And, um, and with that, I just wanted to say thank you again for coming. I know I've kept you a long time, uh, but this was a lot of fun. And um, uh, is there anything else you want to you talk about or plug before, before we go? Uh, well, you know, my site, eldemo.org, if people are interested in languages, is a good place to go. I have also hang out on Fiona's site, realelvish.net. There's another site that I attend uh, called Aglarth, which also has a lot of uh, Elvish language stuff in it. I don't know if I actually have a link to it on my site, but Fiona might. Okay. So that's another community that's worth hanging out with. All right. Well, Paul, thank you so much for coming. You're welcome. All right. Take care. Though this marks the end of the episode, the road goes ever on. Until next time, join us at longwinded.one and consider giving us a review on Apple Music, Spotify, or really whichever platform you choose.